It's not only an energetic concept; it is a structural reality that describes the role of the fascia. So that when you look at the role of the gallbladder as a, a fascial organizer, it goes from head to toe. It goes front to back. It's continually weaving the front of the body to the back of the body. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. It seems to me that acupuncturists don't really trust Chinese medicine. We seem to have a conflicted relationship with the medicine we practice. We like to talk about how we're doctors, but too often we use the research on acupuncture more as advertising and a kind of proof that we're legitimate. Then we use it for guiding our clinical considerations. We rail against how conventional medicine is not holistic, but then we treat with a formulaic protocol, focusing on the disease while at the same time giving lip service to how we treat the whole person, just because we asked about their digestion. Many of us profit from the herbs and supplements that we sell, and yet have a firm stance that drug companies are evil because they too peddle their wares for profits. Do you ask yourself the uncomfortable question of whether the products you sell benefit more the patient or your own income stream? And how often have you added another unit of acupuncture because it means you don't leave money on the table with the insurance company, not because it was truly in the interest of the person that you were treating? If we really trust our medicine, then why put a couple of extra points in just to, you know, cover the bases? If we think our medicine is powerful. Then, why are you perhaps using functional medicine as well? And if Chinese food therapy is so fantastic, then what's the clinical reasoning for the supplement regime that you've got your patients on? And if the herbs are so powerful, then why do you send patients home with a homeopathic remedy? And how is it that acupuncture is so powerful that it can heal, but not cause harm if unskillfully applied? I have a difficult time squaring that one in my mind. I suspect it's hard to trust our medicine because it takes time and experience, years of it, before it seems trustworthy. It's one thing to point towards thousands of years of history and to be able to name the luminaries in the field, but it's quite something else to learn for ourselves in our clinical experience. Learn it well enough that it can reliably inform our perception in a way that translates into repeatable clinical results. Perhaps it's not that we don't trust the medicine, but more that we don't trust ourselves. We live in a world that diminishes the qualitative over the quantitative, and it's also true that, as that trickster physicist Richard Feynman pointed out, you must not fool yourself, and you're the easiest person to fool. Chinese medicine doctors aren't stamped out like widgets on an assembly line. It takes time to grow into the work. It's more of a maturing process. It's like making wine, and less of a mechanical process, like replacing brake pads. It always breaks my heart a little when I hear an East Asian medicine practitioner say, "Acupuncture doesn't treat that," when it's more that they don't know how to treat it yet, but could in time if they stick with it. I suspect if we trusted our medicine more, then our patients would be less overtreated. That if we trusted our medicine and knew how to use it well enough on its own terms, then we wouldn't have to say that a patient would have to wait until treatment eight or ten before they see results. If we trusted our patients and the medicine, 
then we wouldn't need to sign them up for a maintenance package. We would be clear in our minds between educating patients and selling. It's no wonder that so many of us have issues with business and marketing. We're not clear for ourselves on when we're sharing information for our patient's benefit and when we're angling for a full calendar. I'm curious, if you really trusted our medicine, what would you not be doing in your practice? And finally, if acupuncture is powerful enough to heal what other medicines cannot, then it's also powerful enough to cause harm if inappropriately applied. Are you clear on the signs that tell you if your treatment's incorrect? And can you tell the difference between a healing crisis and mistreatment? So, what about you? How is it for you when you sit with this question of trusting our medicine? Do you trust it? The medicines and martial arts of Asia have long considered the lower belly and back to be of significant importance in health, well-being, and as a kind of seat of power and presence. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation about this aspect of our physiology, also known as the koshi, with Jeffrey Don, a longtime practitioner of Japanese medicine. Jeffrey has considered and worked with this aspect of our body and being with a variety of methods over the years and has some ideas about working with this essential aspect of our anatomy. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. 
I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of Spring Yang Chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. I just love talking to these longtime practitioners who wandered into East Asian medicine way back before there were schools and curriculums here in the States. Let's get into this conversation with Jeffrey Don. Jeffrey Dan, welcome to Geological. Thank you so much, Michael. I took a class with you when I first got back to the United States from Asia. That was like 15 years ago. Why does it feel like just yesterday? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's amazing how much time can go by, you know, in the blink of an eye. Yeah, the older we get, the faster it goes. I heard my older relatives say that, and now that I'm an older relative, I say it. It's really true, isn't it? We like to maintain a continuity that to live in the present, and so I think time gets uh, manipulated in our in our cognitive creations. That uh, I think back at that 15 years ago when I was presenting Cauchy balancing and a structural approach to acupuncture uh, feels like it's really recent. And yet when I look back, I think how my ideas have evolved and changed since that time that uh, the core is there, but it's flowered in, in, in a really different way. Well, that is, to me, the sign of living work that it's not the same as it was 15 years ago. It's probably not the same as it was five years ago. That's true. And yet there's an essence to it that's still there. Yes, absolutely. So where did this come from, this, this Koshi work? And, and actually, I want to take a, a step further back. I'm always curious, especially for people that are like, you know, over the age of 50 or 60, how the heck you found your way into something like East Asian medicine? Because, you know, when you were a younger man, that probably wasn't even on the radar. Not at all. In terms of a career path. How'd you get, what, what happened? Yeah, that, I'll, I'll try to give the short version of that. I, I come from a medical family. 
conventional allopathic. And I was raised to be a doctor. And um, my very best friend, who was one year ahead of me, uh, graduating college, went to medical school, committed suicide in his freshman year of medical school. He thought it was inhumane, not really dealing with spirit and, and people. It was so pathologically oriented that I decided not to, at that time, go to medical school. I was interested in anthropology and thought I'd get an MD, MD later. I'll get the PhD first and then do medical anthropology. So I was at the University of Washington in Seattle, and we had they'd gotten a big grant on Native American alcoholism. And I had two, two roles. One, I, I spent about uh, close to a year at a, uh, a reservation in British Columbia, and they wanted to know how adolescents learned to drink, what were the cultural context uh, of their drinking. So I did that. And then the other fellow on the program couldn't handle the urban drinking part. He had his own alcoholic tendencies. So they switched me to Seattle's First Avenue, if you know. Oh, I do. Well, I've lived in Seattle a long time. Oh, okay. First so Avenue, I, man, Skid Row. That's right. Yeah. Pioneer Square. Exactly where I hung out. Yeah. I was 25, 24, and it was an anthropological fieldwork, which would not be considered ethical now because I was just undercover. I posed as a young drifter and uh, had to sort out which tribes used which taverns and what were the inter-ethnic relations uh, on Pioneer Square and, and Skid Road. And... Uh, in the end, I came to the conclusion that we're studying the wrong population. There's so many reasons to drink if you're from a, a broken, dispossessed ethnic group. We should be studying the Native Americans that didn't have drinking problems. Uh, and I, I saw there was a problem with focus on pathology and that they had no concept of, of health or wellness. And right at that same time, I started to get into Japanese martial arts. And there all of a sudden was a concept of vitality, of chi cultivation, of health and wellness. And so dramatic right now, Michael, what we're going through and watching the riots. 1968, Seattle was aflame. Black Panthers were marching. SDS had blown up the ROTC building next to our anthropology department. We said, this, is, this feels like civil war. So a group of us from the anthropology department moved to Hawaii to establish a commune. We called ourselves a fourth world family. We didn't want to be first world, second world, or third world. We wanted not a different uh, share of the pie, but a different pie. And so we... So you kind of dropped out. Oh, very. Turn, tune in, turn on, drop out. Yeah, absolutely. And got really involved with Japanese martial arts and with the local Japanese community on the big island. Right, which, which would have been a really, you know... Big Japanese influence there in Japan. Huge. Huge. Uh, yeah. I think at, at, at that time, 1968, 1969, Hilo, Hawaii was 60% Japanese. It was still a sugarcane, third world colonial 
plantation mm-hmm. environment. I mean, it was the very, very edge of the American empire. That's right. And that's why we want, went there. Yeah. And the weather's better than Seattle. <laughs> well, it rains more in Hilo. <laughs> anyway, uh, we started, uh, there were three of us that uh, took over the anthropology department and uh, uh, started teaching. And then I realized... Wait a minute, anthropology department where? University of Hawaii at Hilo. In, in Hawaii, okay. In Hawaii, yeah. So you, you went to Hawaii, you got involved with the university there. Right. And you took it over. Uh, yeah, there were three of us uh, from the anthropology department. And I realized I need to go to Japan. I need to study what, how these people are learning body-mind wellness in the martial arts. So 1972, I went to Japan and stayed there for three years, uh, very involved with the, uh, the classical art of kendo, the Japanese swordsmanship. Intense stuff, man. Yeah, it was very intense. And uh, all of my teachers were practitioners of traditional medicine. So they were beating each other with swords for part of the day and healing for the other part. Yeah, that's correct. (laughs) And to get back to your original question, they kept talking about koshi. I said, what the hell is koshi? For that term, there's no concept in English, just like hara which people know more, there's not an equivalent English body-mind concept for this. And so I'll back up one more step here. So when I was at that young 25-year-old stage, I knew nothing of yoga. I took a yoga class, and uh, the teacher got into the full lotus. I said, oh, I can do that, and just... <laughs> muscled it <laughs> and and injured my my right knee which has been a problem now for 50 years but uh i was going to a goodbye party uh to uh, the week before going to japan and dancing a fancy step with a woman all of a sudden i'm on the floor my knee had dislocated and uh i popped it back into place uh, it was a Saturday. A Monday, I went to uh, a chiropractor. He said, oh, I think you got a, a medial meniscus. You better go see an orthopedist. I saw the orthopedist later that week. He said, oh, I can operate on you next week. I said, no, I'm going to Japan for several years uh, next week. Uh, sorry, no. So I got to Japan. I'm in a traditional apartment. No chairs, no couches. You sit on the floor. Every time I sat cross-legged, my knee would dislocate. In the dojo, same thing, every time, etc. So at the language school I was studying, I said, go see this traditional doctor. He's helped a lot of our students. And I go, I go see this doctor. And here my, my kendo sensei is talking about, you got to learn how to put your koshi into it. And then this traditional uh, Shinto priest therapist says, you know, your koshi is twisted. Your hamstrings are really tight. Uh, your knee's not the problem. It's the larger relationship of your lower leg, Jaashi Koshi. And let's work with that. And I wouldn't say he healed me, but he made it so that I could have an active life. 
Well, he kind of set you on a path, didn't he? Absolutely. It was profound. And um, going back to this, the thing we talked about earlier about this shamanic experience I had with the, the COVID-19. So after I had lived in Japan and uh, then I went to study, uh, I said, I have to really learn, go to the motherland to learn acupuncture. And I went to Hong Kong. And then I got into Beijing in the 1981. It was in the first cohort of people to study with Wang Juyi. You were studying with Wang Juyi? In 1981. It was his first foreign cohort that he had in Beijing at the Beijing Municipal Hospital of uh, Traditional Chinese Medicine. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. That's... Jeffrey... Dan, you really have been a fortunate man. I'm very fortunate. I've been really lucky with the, the teachers that have accepted me and opened themselves to me. So anyway, I went back to Japan after uh, uh, living in, in China, studying with Wang Juyi, and went to this uh, the Shinto therapist, doctor, priest, and I was challenging him. What do you know about five elements? And what do you know about yin-yang and eight parameters? And he just laughed at me. <laughs> he said, hey, Jeffrey, the treatment is your heart and your hands get out of your head. It was very profound. He was one of the, the, the most profound. He said, really was that most illnesses have a Shen component. And you have to attend. And of course, with my own study with anatomy, with fascia, with dissections, with Gil Headley and, and all these people, I've been... the the so medically focused and so anatomically and, and uh, physiologically focused that the, that message from that first teacher, so for profound in 1972, came back to me with the shamanic illness dreams of my, of my viral encounter that said, spend more time on spirit. You have the structural part down. So that just... <laughs> Wow. So there's a lot here. And, and, and I want to share something with you that, that this brings up for me. Okay. I never wanted anything to do with medicine. You know, I come from this nice Jewish family. I'm supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, right? Some kind of professional like that. Never Medicine in particular wanted nothing to do with it. I don't like being around sick people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you tell the story of your friend who committed suicide, and, and it rings a bell in me. I mean, it strikes, it, it rings a resonance in me. So it's, that's the exact thing that I never caught into with conventional medicine, is that it's always looking at pathology. Story that you tell about, we're studying this native population. We shouldn't be studying the ones drinking. We should be studying the ones who aren't drinking. Mm -hmm. And so... For me, I came to East Asian medicine because a friend I used to do Aikido with, so we have that Japanese connection. He badgered me into going to get acupuncture. I mean, he like harassed me. I went, I went to shut him up. And in, in turn, I ended up finding a whole new life, you know, eventually. But what caught my attention about the East Asian medicine, number one, it helped me and I got curious. Number two, as I started to study it, I realized 
that there was a piece in it that I'd never seen in, in conventional medicine, which was the piece about vitality, the piece about the Zheng Qi, the, the, the piece about the things that are working well. And that's, what, and that's what's drawn me in over all these years. Now, I have been super curious about the people that can put their hands on people and they know things, right? People like you who have studied the fascia, people who have gone deep into like the osteopathic sensing. And it just seems to me that there's something in that. And I feel like such a piece of like uncarved wood <laughs> when I put my hands on people that way. And yet over the years, that's where I keep putting my attention. And so now I hear you talk about that you, you've studied all this physiology, and we're going to get into that in a moment. And, and now you're coming to the other side, which is there is all that and something else. And it gives me a little bit of hope that maybe if I just keep putting my hands on people, that there's something to learn that goes beyond our rational conscious mind. Yes. And this also relates, I think, to uh, your podcast of the, the week previous about uh, touch and the, uh, the, the ventral vagus system. Because mm. what was not clear, I think, uh, or I would add to that podcast, is that why humans and primates have this evolution of the ventral vagus system rather than just the rest and digest portion of the dorsal vagus system has to do with the uh, prolonged infancy dependency of a child to be able to bond and have attachments and know who's safe, where you get pleasure, where you find resource. And that is from the mother stroking the, the child's face the vocalizations, the eye contact, and that's what makes people feel safe and secure. And so when I hear you talking about the, the touch, it, I think the real healing power that we do is the mother's touch for the infant. This is where it's pure heart coming through hands, eyes, and voice. And so... Uh, Whatever style of work we do, I think it's the, the mother's heart is where the connection to, to whoever we're, uh, is on our table. That's, where, that's what initiates. Initiates. Gets the process going. And that, that, and that jumps right ahead to me in one sense that I think even in our medicine, which can be so overly influenced by biomedicine, by the Western end is doing. And, and what we know from the power of listening, the listening to the pulse, that we shouldn't be in a rush to do when we put our hands on someone, can we just listen to feel where their chi is, where is their shen? Uh, and let's, let's just first establish a connection before, oh, yeah, I see that trigger point. I'm going to go right after it. Your, your right shoulder's too high, and we'll lower that uh, that sort of thing. So for, for me, I think part of the, the, the osteopathic listening, it really gets, you know, let's take our time. Let's establish connection through touch and voice 
and eyes first, and then see what the body tells you rather than, oh, I know what's wrong with you, and I'm going to fix it. Well, this is, this is the promise in the agreement of modern medicine, that someone has a problem, someone has knowledge and hopefully a solution, and the agreement is someone's going to bring their problem to that person who knows how to fix it, and they're going to fix it. Mm-hmm. And what do us acupuncturists often say? Well, yeah, I fixed their back pain, right? I fixed their headaches. I fixed their menstruation. I gave them a child. We, I hear us talk that way. And, and, and I have talked that way. But, but here's where I've run into problems. There's the good days where I, I'm using air quotes here, fix something. What about the days when it doesn't get fixed? What about the days when it gets worse? Mm-hmm. Am I on the hook for that too? I guess I am. So for me, it's opened up an inquiry of, well, who's doing the work here anyway? Mm-hmm. Because we are connected to it. We are part of it. But which part? Mm-hmm. It's like it's like I think the fascia system of, of the body. It's a dynamic reciprocal relationship. Now you're now now you're talking like an osteopath. Dynamic reciprocal relation. Tell okay for people that don't know what that is. Tell us what a dynamic reciprocal relationship is. Sounds like sex action. <laughs> <laughs> It, it essentially means anytime you have a structure and if you put some type of stimulus into one portion of the structure, the whole structure responds. There's a dynamic mm-hmm. response. For example, I think what the way that uh, we've tended to look at the uh, body and particularly from, I would say, the chiropractic structural point of view that you have bones, vertebrae out of place and I will do an adjustment and put that vertebrae in place. No, it's the relationship of the musculotendinous fascial relationships as they can reorganize, then the bones can be back in place. So the dynamic reciprocal relationship is that when we change one part of it, the whole system adapts. Whereas if you think of the, what I would call the post and beam uh, architectural structure of the body, that there's just a an osseous piece that's out of place that just has to be pushed back. And there's there's no systemic response to that. Where if you think of it, no, that that structure is out of place because of the pulls and the, the torques of, of the whole body, that the whole body responds and the whole body has to be addressed. We're back to your young man's knee. Yeah. <laughs> and your koshi, aren't we? That's how I got into it. Yes. I, I love the quote. I was looking back at uh, Giovanni Maciocha's book on, uh, on the channel system. And, and there he, he said it. Uh, I can read it here. He says, uh, we have thought of Chinese medicine as emphasizing function to the detriment of structure and used to thinking of the body as a system of channels through which qi flows to the organs. The system seen in this way is rather theoretical, unrealistic, and abstract, and does not take into account anatomical reality. So that uh, it, it's both. We need, it's an, an energetic medicine, but I think the 
the structural component of our medicine that is embedded in the meridian, the channel system, the eight extras, and, and the primary all have structural implications uh, that uh, bring us to a whole body response rather than, uh, I think the work that, you know, people are just now really rediscovering Janet Travell's book that around for over 30 years we've been doing trigger points uh, trigger points are wonderful and and really knowing where the, the the motor end plate point is but it's too reductionistic it doesn't yeah i my 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 infraspinatus went out and i'm having shoulder pain well just a needle in in, in small intestine 11 may relieve the pain but doesn't explain why that shoulder is having the problem. What's the whole body relationship? Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. I mean, I think this is one of the things that draws a lot of us to this medicine, is that we realize everything's kind of connected to everything, which is, which is a fun thing to say, and I think it's a true thing to say. But then we have to get into looking at, well, how is it connected and how do we know how to use those connections? Which I think is one of the reasons your work is really interesting. Because, you know, you talk about this Koshi, and we're gonna I want to get into that here in just a moment. And, and you talk about something that that that's near and dear to my heart because as a young man, for some reason, I just loved reading Buckminster Fuller's mm-hmm. work. Oh, yeah. He was just he was just he was like this brilliant wild guy you know with these geeky glasses and bald head oh women i look like him now but he was just like brilliant scientist and this amazingly inquisitive mind and he had this whole thing about tensegrity exactly and that's the dynamic reciprocal relationship uh so that people i many people don't realize that he is the inventor of the geodesic dome we got a great big one right here in st louis at botanical garden so there, there's no center pole, there's no postman beam, there, there, there's no ridge pole. It's, it's held together by internal, the tensions between the spaces. That's the whole tensegrity response. It's held together by the tensions between the spaces. Yes. 
And that goes right to Wang Juyi's concept of qi hua, the qi transformation. He says, where's the needle when you stick it in? It's in the empty spaces, in the soli. It's not in the skin, it's not in the muscle, it's in the empty spaces, the extracellular matrix, where the transformation occurs where either the organs can release their toxins, excesses, and nutrition can be then absorbed into the tissues from the extracellular matrix. And so I, I love that concept of, of trying to uh, definitely with, with needlework and with manual work of finding the empty spaces where transformation, you can feel the transformation begin to wake up. I love it. You know, and, and we're talking about how our work on one hand is we're doing something to help somebody. And yet I know from my experience, and I'm sure you know from yours, and many listeners probably have this too, sometimes you do some work with someone and something happens and you just wonder, where did that come from? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when I hear you talk about the empty spaces where the transformation is, there's just, there's just something delicious about that particular thought and and i'm a practical kind of guy so i love things that sound poetic and beautiful and that kind of ring true i trust that and the question becomes how do i learn to interact with that how do i find those empty spaces how do i learn to have a conversation with them right and i think part of the answer is you have to have our own emptiness I mean, our own listening uh, with alert attention and not doing yet. <laughs> I love not doing yet. Right. Let the body speak. Baral always says, let only the tissues know. Let the tissues speak. So if we rush into that trigger point or we rush into the excess area or try to realign things, no, let the body speak first. See what the body is telling us, what it wants and what it needs, rather than our diagnostic imposition into their field. And yet there's an aspect of us that needs that, those diagnostic mental models. Oh, yes. And at the same time, we need to hold them loosely enough to listen to what the body's saying. Exactly. Exactly. And, and many times there are wonderful surprises that can take you into really different areas where you thought that, no, I thought the problem was in this one part of the body, but I'm being directed to another part. It's all related. It's all connected. I, I get this with, uh, I've been very influenced by uh, Rolfing, mm -hmm. the structural approach of Rolfing. I've been very influenced by, my, my kendo teacher was primarily a, a body worker who did seitai, which is different than shiatsu. It has a very much more a structural approach. They, they would always say, yeah, you don't know where the restriction is. So if you have a neck pain, and going back to, to Ida Rolf, she said, how can you treat a neck which is not being supported by the torso? 
So just don't focus on the neck. What is the underlying foundation? If the foundation is out of balance as you go up the structure in the field of gravity, uh, there's secondary and tertiary compensation. So we have to look at the whole the whole pattern. The same thing, the koshi, the, the center of, of, of gravity in the body, the, the lumbar pelvic center, if the ankle-knee-hip relationship is out of balance, there's no way the koshi can be balanced. So with my Koshi problem, it was largely that, uh, and this is true of so many of us, particularly men, our hamstring muscles are way too tight. We don't have flexibility. And that, that brings me to uh, another uh, sideline, maybe not a, like, why do we have, we have many classical points in the sacral area, and the, the and and the sacroiliac joint. There's only one major point in the buttocks, the Huan Tiao, gallbladder 30. Of course, many people are now. Why are we finding all these other areas in the the gluteus medius and the gluteus minimus? It's because we are chair sitters, and people traditionally in ancient China and Japan were floor sitters. Their hips were so much more open than ours. We are really, our hip joints, this is why we have so many hip replacements. It's a major ball and socket joint. And we're sitting in our cars, we're sitting in our chairs, and the hip joint has so little range of motion, it deteriorates. It's meant to, so that, well, I could work with men and sensei in their 80s in Japan that grew up sitting on the floor and using squat toilets. They were so much more flexible than the junior high school kids we were working with that grew up in Japan with Western toilets and uh, chair sitting culture. And I think that's why they don't have these other uh, motor trigger points in, in the gluteal area because they they were much more open. We, we our our butts, our koshis are much more restricted. This is one of those. I don't think arguments the right word, but one of those nudges to say, pay attention to the channel, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, it, you know, I, there are points on channels. There are points of influence. Mm -hmm. Fascinated by the idea here that a floor sitting culture will have different points that tend to show up than a chair sitting culture because our physiology is different. Absolutely. That, and, and that makes sense. I mean, I hear you say it and I think, well, that makes sense. Uh, but it's helpful to hear it because, you know, usually we just look at the book and it's like, oh, yeah, here's the channels and here's the points. And but we don't think about like, well, where did that come from? Mm hmm. And yet, if you look at the uh, the uh, musculotendinous channels, which are broader uh, uh, anatomically, you can see, oh yeah, there it's important. And that was Wang Juyi's. Uh, I think you have to attend to the channel, not just the points. And then the points will tell you <laughs> along the channel which ones are really. Yeah, they will show up, yeah. but you have to go. You have to go looking for them. Right. Right. You can't pull out your measuring tape. Yeah. <laughs> you got to pull out your hands and you got to listen. Mm -hmm. Listen to the tissues. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we've been kicking around the term Koshi. Tell us more about this Koshi thing. So in, in English, a patient comes in and they say, oh, my back's hurting. 
where's your back? Uh, what do you mean? Uh, oh, my hips are hurting. <laughs> a low back. Uh, we're, we're very, we don't have a clear sensory descriptive sense of our, our back or, or how the lumbar uh, spine relates to the pelvis, relates to the legs. And I, in, in both the Chinese and the Japanese cultures, there's a very different body-mind concept. And uh, you certainly get it in Tai Chi. It's interesting to me that uh, the Chinese emphasize the Kwa. The Japanese emphasize the Koshi. The, the Kwa is really the front part of the Koshi, uh, where the uh, alignment of, of, of the pelvis, whether it's hyperextended or you have a uh, loss of a lumbar curve, comes from that uh, the adductors and the tensor fasciolata that can pull the, uh, the pelvis forward, or it's in dynamic relationship to the hamstrings that can pull it back and put you into a high. So there's a dynamic relationship in those, uh, those structures, whereas we don't have a, an English concept that describes that whole pattern. And Koshi does, because Koshi goes from mid-thigh to actually the thoracic lumbar junction. And in, ja in Japanese culture, it's such a profound concept of where balance and strength and movement come from. Well, now, how does this relate? I might be jumping ahead. A lot of people are familiar with the term hara. But, but Koshi and hara are not the same thing. I suspect they're connected. They are in dynamic reciprocal relationships. <laughs> So the hara, again, in English, we say belly, we say abdomen. The hara, and, uh, and actually we put the heart in the chest. Uh, and in Japanese culture, the hara has a lot of function of, of heart. When you say that we say someone's a big-hearted person, he's generous. In Japanese, they say hara ga oki, he's got a big heart. And someone's stingy and mean-spirited, like our president. They say he's got a black belly. How do I so there, black belly. Black belly, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> uh, so there's there's many uh, emotional concepts. The, the hara as being the center of uh, the emotional and spiritual center, where the koshi is the physical drive behind that. So if uh, in, in Buddhist or Zen thought, uh, fudoshin, the immovable mind, the one point, that is the function of the hara. But then what moves that one point into action is potency. Is the koshi. Is the koshi. Yeah. So the koshi is what gets the work done. Yeah. So I think maybe uh, the, the best word that we have in English that come close to koshi is loins. Gird your loins. Mm -hmm. That's a bigger concept. It involves your legs, it involves your hips, the, the whole mental activity of engagement, of, of potency that uh, back doesn't have. And in Japan, even someone just doing a flower arrangement or tea ceremony, they're looking at the relationship of the koshi in terms of the beauty of posture, of stillness, of... Um, of organ the organization of the body to be both still and be ready for 
appropriate movement. That sounds like somebody doing an acupuncture treatment. <laughs> I mean, as we were just talking about, at first listen, yeah. what do the tissue say? To not do yet, to have that relationship between sensing and being, and then and then knowing what action to very clearly take. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So a, a problem in the koshi could also be coming from the ankle could be coming from the ankle portion of the kidney channel or of the bladder channel, the gallbladder. But I, I do want to go on. I'm going to jump ahead, Michael, if I may, because. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I'm a gallbladder freak. <laughs> <laughs> a gallbladder freak. Yeah. Uh, okay. Gallbladder to me is, uh, is among the most interesting and the most profound of, of, of channels, both on an emotional, but essential structurally. So if I think of classical art or classical medicine has, a, particularly from the Shanghan Lung, has a very layered concept of the organization of the body, whether you start with Wei Qi, Ying Qi, we have the Tai Yang, and then we have the, the, the Shao Yang, and, and then the uh, Yang Ming. So that the Shao Yang has represented the interface between the exterior and the interior. It's not only an energetic concept, it is a structural reality that describes the role of the fascia. So that when you look at the role of the gallbladder as a, a fascial organizer, it goes from head to toe. It goes front to back. It's continually weaving the front of the body to the back of the body. And through the gallbladder channel from the lower legs up through the iliotibial band into the sacral area, this is where foundational strength comes and then it moves into the upper body up into the head so the gallbladder if you think of many chronic muscular skeletal problems what points come up all the time gallbladder 20 gallbladder 21 gallbladder 30 gallbladder 34 40 so that and the one of the fascinating things for me as i really began to explore the role of the, the gallbladder channel and points in terms of structure is that I'm a Japanese style practitioner, so I don't do deep needling, uh, particularly. So I do some, but that the major gallbladder points are all tend to be superficial. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to compare the Japanese gallbladder 30 with the Chinese. The gallbladder, Chinese uh, Huan Chao, is in the belly of the piriformis muscle, whereas the Japanese say, no, it's you, you got to palpate around the greater tro trochanter, and so you're really working on the, the tenderness, uh, uh, osseous relationship of those big six uh, rotator gluteal muscles to find what is out of balance. So it's a, it's a, it's a much more nuanced, but that Japanese gallbladder 30, because you're feeling right around the, uh, the bony structure is shallow. Gallbladder 34 is shallow. Gall, gallbladder 40, you can't go deep. Gallbladder, and, and half the gallbladder points are, are cranial points that are just superficial. So it's interesting to me as a channel that 
its role is to mediate and balance the exterior with the interior, so many of its points are on the surface and respond beautifully to light, gentle stimulation. This, I mean, this is that tensegrity piece again. Yes. You know, and we've got all this fascial material that the gallbladder is made, gallbladder channels made out of, right? You can, you can see it. Looking at anatomy trains, looking in that book is just fascinating. It's like, oh, yeah, there's a gallbladder channel. Yep, that's right. It's very clearly represented. The, the thing that also comes to mind for me, I think about the other side of the Shaoyang, which is also often very associated with the fascia, which is the Sanjiao, the triple burner. Absolutely. Which also has a relationship of inside and outside. I would suspect, this is my idea, I'm curious to hear what you've got to say, but it's a more interior aspect of interior exterior. Yes. And I think it really relates to the fluid relationships be between the three burners, uh, that it's more it's the metabolic relationship of structure. And that gets me very much into uh, the Hara visceral work, because I, I, I found profound resonance with uh, the Baral and osteopathic abdominal visceral work. And it's striking to me, for example, I think I counted there were 40 classical points on the abdomen between the, the ren, the kidney, the chong, uh, the stomach, the spleen, the gall, all of them. And most acupuncturists rely on about seven points. And to me, the biggest wake up was the importance of the sphincters and realize that there was no awareness then in my education in acupuncture school of the sphincters or of the points that were directly over the sphincters. Instead, everyone goes for stomach 25. And I, I wrote an article in Najom about the, the cultural limitations of uh, aesthetic design because Chinese culture and Japanese culture like symmetry. And so when you go to uh, Ren 4, Ren 12, Stomach 25, you have a beautiful symmetry around the navel. It's architectural design, but it has nothing to do with the real anatomy. I think if you want to treat the, the large intestine, Spleen 15 is, is much more responsive than Stomach 25. And where are the sphincter of Odi? and the duodenal uh, jejunal junction, those are stomach 23. So when you then read the, the names of the points, they understood those points by palpation, but they've been kind of lost by the, the, the cultural architecture of symmetry in, uh, in Japanese and Chinese culture. So that we can even relate this structurally. If you have a back problem, and you want to bend over to pick something up, if your liver doesn't glide and go forward, you can't bend over. It pulls on the back of the, uh, of the diaphragm so that we can get dramatic 
that di again, dynamic reciprocal relationships between the hara and visceral structures and their relationship to the, the back structures. So often we are back to that question of, so just where is this problem coming from? Because right? people come in and they'll say things like, well, you know, I got this back problem. It's hard to bend over. And, and it's easy for us to think, oh, kidney deficiency or, or I have to work on the back. I, I mean, those are sort of the go-to things that, that and, they, and they help often enough. But sometimes you have to treat the front to get to the back. Yeah. And this is why I, one of the things I think about for me that's so critical for the Japanese approach is you have to attend to the abdomen. You can't just do the back. And for some reason, uh, cultural uh, Chinese didn't do that. They, they have the, the history is there, but not the contemporary uh, practice so much. And that may be you know, the Japanese culture. Uh, for one, they love hot baths. Japanese food tends to be cold, whether you're going to have sushi or sashimi or, or cold tofu. So the Japanese uh, culture, uh, with their coldness in terms of the food, they don't use much ginger, garlic, or, or chili spices compared to Chinese. Japanese like more direct moxa, for example, and they love ofudos are essential for Japanese peace of mind. And so Japanese loving hot baths and then abdominal massage. So in the 17th century, that whole fukushin, the compo, is that you can do a whole herbal diagnosis by the, the findings and the pattern of the abdomen. Yeah, those, are, th those books are amazing mm -hmm. that, that were written back then. I, as I recall... The fellow who came up with that wasn't even literate. It was his students that wrote that stuff down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and by the way, Nigel Dawes has a new book coming out on Compo, which is fabulous. I, I and, would expect it to be. <laughs> and one of the things he does in that book, which is so profound for me, which we don't see in other books, that he looks at uh, palpation, and uh, particularly abdominal pal palpation, and then he relates it to... Uh, the uh, related tradition of shiatsu, and then seitai, and then sotai movement therapy, they're all part of a larger pattern, which is, you know, some people have said Japanese acupuncture is touch medicine. Mm -hmm. They pay much more time to palpation to find the currently alive point than going to say, this, this point is anatomically exactly three sun below the head of this bony structure, so that... Uh, yeah, that they all share an importance of abdominal palpation for diagnosis and for treatment. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, 
heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Now for folks that may not have a background in Chinese medicine, or they're listening to this conversation and they're thinking, oh, maybe I would be, maybe it would be helpful for me and helpful for my patients if I could learn to put my hands on people and quiet down a little and get some information before I decide what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. I'm not asking for a master class on this, but for people that might be at the beginning stages of considering using their hands to listen, to get information. Have you got some thoughts about how to start? I think um, some aspects of Qigong can be very useful where you begin to get more. You know, the interesting thing about our hands, Michael, is that the deep fascia and the superficial fascia come to the same interface in our hands. It's one of the few places. Mm -hmm. So that when we put our hands on the body, not only can we feel the superficial fascia of what I would call it, I'd say the way and the yin chi level, but we can also get signals and messages from the deep fascia, which goes to the deep muscular structures and even to the organs. So that there is a cultivation of, of senses when you, probably everyone has seen that uh, uh, image of the brain in terms of the body and m a huge amount of brain sensory organization is purely in the hands and then in the mouth compared so that this is our great receptor and learning how to uh, be open to receiving rather than doing all I want to do. How do I make that adjustment? How do I get them into this position? Now, first, the tissues will lead you, lead you there if you listen. And so again, I, I go back to myself for how do I cultivate the mother's touch? Mm -hmm. uh, a loving touch, which is not doing anything, it's just being present to get the signals from the body of where are you being called rather than, oh, I've got this, uh, I've got this analytically all figured I've out. I've got an agenda just, here. You yeah. have to go in without an agenda. Yeah. And agenda is important, but we don't have to start with mm -hmm. it when we get our hands on the, on the person. Structurally, I think there are, yeah, there are a number of what I would call uh, axes for example, the occipital atlanta between the, the cranium and C1, between C7 and T1, the neck into the thorax, the transition from the thorax to the lumbar vertebrae. These are key transitional areas. So it's very uh, easy to, uh, in Cauchy balancing and other systems, to just compare how's right and left. Do, do I have symmetry? Do I have asymmetry? Well, okay. 
let me listen if I find asymmetry. Where's the pull? Because it could be could be coming from the psoas, could be coming from a gluteal muscle, could be coming from any number of other structures. So instead of my thinking, at least give some moment to what's the body telling you about that asymmetry which you've found? I'm back to thinking about that reciprocal tension thing. And I mean, this makes sense to me that we can go through and see, is there symmetry, is there symmetry? Oh, symmetry, symmetry. Oh, no symmetry. Here's a place where there's no, the symmetry's off. Mm -hmm. So from there, okay, where where is that going? Yeah. So I love the, uh, one of the things I really got from um, studying uh, Sotai movement therapy and the principles of uh, Hashimoto Keizo, who was a neurologist in the 1920s. He worked with uh, Yoshio Manaka, and when he came back from the war in Manchuria, he was made the head of a very large school district in Sendai. So he's working with thousands of school kids. And then he says, which ones are not doing well in school? And he found there was often a structural component, a postural issue. And so he started finding what he would call the patterns of distortion. And the, the classical example, and this goes back to the leg-pelvis, the ashi-koshi relationship. If I strain my right ankle, then the compensation goes to my left knee. I can't bear weight on my right ankle, so the weight goes to my left. But then my right hip has to compensate for the compensation. And so you get this diagonal crisscrossing pattern. And that's why the shoulder goes out. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, it's very profound to start at the feet for uh, the, the listening and for the structural analysis and work up. Because if the foundation is off, then the house is out, out of structure. So it's like building a house and then the, the plumbing and the electricity are impacted by balanced foundation. So this is why, again, now, although we do practice an energetic medicine, which is fantastic and wonderful, there is a structural component which has to be attended yeah. to. Well, we do both. Mm -hmm. We, we right. actually do both. And, and I think quite often practitioners will come down on one side or, it's, or the other, right? Some of them are like, I'm very much, I work with the meat suit and I get that thing working properly. And there's others that are, well, I'm just over here working with the spirit. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say mm -hmm. one's wrong, one's right. Um, but as we were talking about earlier, and as you've had some very personal experience with recently with being ill, spirit and body are not disconnected. Absolutely, yeah. And um, sometimes the, the spirit is more profound, for sure, that impacts our structural uh, complaints. And sometimes the structural complaints have a huge impact on our, our emotional body. And so, yeah, we have to do both. It can make it really difficult to decide where do I begin? Yeah. Uh, I guess what I do, and uh, partly not to have a plan, but to let the, the emotional interface with the person decide, do I want to take their pulse first? 
do I want to feel their abdomen first or do I want to start at their feet and see if the heels align and if the hip has equal movement as internal, external rotation? Um, I do all of them. But the sequencing is really determined by the unknown interaction with the We're patient. kind of back to this dance of doing and not doing, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that is our Taoist legacy in our medicine, the Wu Wei. Mm -hmm. How do we welcome just listening before we jump into the doing to help the person? Well, you know, we're, we're in the midst of what's now going to be the summer of COVID. Um, as we're recording this, there's riots throughout the country. Finding, finding a place of quietude to do our work seems really challenging at this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting in a way that at least in Colorado, we are legally required to only work at 50% capacity. Mm-hmm. So... Something I'm only, and I, I'm not rushing into it. I, I want to learn how to deal with this larger social, ecological impact there while feeling I'm only seeing right now like three people a day. How, how does that feel for you? It gives me more exploratory time. I don't feel I have to be so time efficient. I can have more openness uh, and more listening and take my time dealing with each person to see what really needs to be attended to. So I'm financially, it's horrible. <laughs> but, but clinically, I'm finding it kind of exciting, not to have to be driven by my clock. Okay, it was a 45 minute treatment this hour and a half hour, whatever. No, all that is, is out just attend to the person uh, in their wholeness. Well, you know, sometimes blessings come in really dirty work clothes, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this, uh, this getting back and uh, realizing there's, not, there's no going back to the old normal. <laughs> I, it, I, and I've heard a lot of people say they don't want to go back to what was normal because normal was actually not that good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I looked structurally at society, about our the economics of running for political office, the, the institutional racism, and the, the structure is imbalanced. And then eventually the energetics become imbalanced. This is what we're seeing. The, the flare-ups is because of the structural asymmetries. And so we need structural reform not just uh, quieting the fires. You know, it's, this is one of the things I really appreciate about the East Asian medicine point of view. It allows us to work with human beings in a one-on-one -on -one basis. Talking about these principles that we were just talking about this hour, we can also take it and look at our families or our communities or our country. And those principles still hold true. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a it's a global ecological medicine. And again, I think on the thinking of the virus is that 
you read nothing in the Western medicine literature about how do we build our immune system to deal with this. So everything is dealing with the disease, not dealing with the health and, and vitalities because our, our bodies have dealt with viruses and bacteria for as long as we've been human. Yes. Well, and we don't, we don't overcome viruses as far as I know. I mean, maybe there's a way that that will get figured out, but it seems more that we co-evolve with them. Yes, and, absolutely. And one of the wonderful things about the kind of medicine that we do, it allows us to work with people with who they are and where they are in any particular given moment. Yeah, yeah. I think we have an important role in uh, supporting vitality and health. We have an important role in the battle between uh, pathogen and and essential chi and then also once the pathogen is John and the recovery I think all all three areas of engagement we we have something that Western medicine has the potential for that some of the uh, I'd say more functional medicines more holistic uh, Western doctors understand but uh, it's foundational in our medicine. It's, a, it's a real benefit and for better or worse, I think we're going to have an opportunity to to really find out for ourselves how it can mm -hmm. be helpful as, yeah. as this situation continues to unfold. Well, Jeffrey, I thoroughly have enjoyed this. You know, again, we, we first met about 15 years ago, and it's good to be reminded about the Koshi, its reciprocal relationship with the Hara, I think I've got some reviewing and some work to do. <laughs> well, we all do. It's uh, I, I think, uh, for example, I'll just go off again on the study of fascia, which has when uh, I think in 2007, we went to the first international fascia conference uh, at Harvard, there was only 200 peer review articles on fascia. Then now there's thousands, and what we're finding, and and uh, bring this back thing again, maybe to Japanese acupuncture, is that uh, the fascia is a sensory organ. We don't think of it as an organ. Do we think we realize the skin is an organ, the heart is an organ, the fascia is an organ, and it's a responsive organ. And it's right below the skin, it's the superficial fascia, the adipose, capillary. It's where all the nutritive yin chi uh, resides. And so, for uh, so much of our needle technique, at least particularly in the, in the Japanese style, is superficial. It's contact needling. It's one to three millimeters. If you do a deep insertion, maybe you go 10 millimeters. You're definitely not even down to the muscle layer. And I think what they're finding is that the autonomic nervous system and the skin come from the same embryological tissue as the brain, the ectoderm, where the muscle layer is from the mesoderm so that there's way more autonomic re-regulation and stimulus when we do superficial needling compared to let's say a, uh, a a motor trigger point 
for someone with throwing the baseball too hard and deeper needling. But for balancing the chi, there's something to be said that we get a different kind of organization and response and re-regulation when we stay on the surface and on the, the, which is that is how we interact with the world. That's our, that's our filter. It's how our skin and superficial fascia respond. And um, Gil Headley, by the way, is one of the great uh, holistic uh, anatomical dissectors. And uh, he has shown clearly it's worth uh, on YouTube, all of his dissection work is for free. It's not sold anymore. And they take off the superficial fascia as an entity, just like you take off the skin as an entity. And you see that, uh, and he says that this is not only a sensory organ, this is where we get our intuitive gut response. So the intuitive aspect that we attend to the women in our society is that being more emotional and emotionally responsive and the men theoretically are more cranial, <laughs> intellectual. No, it's because they have more superficial fascia than we do. It's a sensory organ. Just, it gives a just like they have bigger connections between the right and left side of the brain with the course, corsum callosum. Corpus yes. Callosum. Yeah, that's right. So not only do they have this larger sensory organ to bring in information, but they've got more ability to integrate it between the sides of their brain. Yes. Yeah. That's, Listen um, to your mother's. And practice mother's hands. And practice mother's <laughs> hands. I love that term. And, and and I like the other thing that you said about it's about safety, pleasure, and resources that help to bring us back to a sense of 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 being regulated in our own systems. Right. And in this idea of working with the superficial fascia, working with the triple burner, working with this aspect of our physiology and neurology, because they come embryologically from the same source, especially right now as people are so dysregulated psychoemotively, just the thought right now of sticking needles deeply into people does not sound right to me. I, I love the idea that, oh, I could use a soft touch and, and just lightly interact because right now too much of a push in any direction just really seems like it might cause more problems and bring solutions. Yeah, that, that's a, a really important point. And uh, for me, it came home by uh, the use of the Teishin. Uh, teacher in Japan, uh, Takehiro Funomizu. So I, w I went up to Japan uh, during a uh, little bit after the, uh, the great uh, tsunami and when the Fukushima nuclear went down and people all staying in, in shelters and uh, refugee places. And even though these were meridian therapy acupuncturists I went with, they're doing very, very light, gentle, superficial needling compared to uh, TCM or, or Chinese needling. The people were overwhelmed. They couldn't even handle that. So what Funamusa did was just start doing Teixin work particularly on the head. And uh, I had him come to Hawaii and we had a, uh, 
a Vietnam uh, veteran that couldn't look you in the eyes. He was completely disassociated. And it was just all the stroking of the gallbladder channel on the head uh, and on the throat. The str- and I realized this is the ventral vagus just with light stimulation where people will just go into these kind of blissful states that the, the glossopharyngeal nerve, the facial nerve, the uh, accessory nerve that governs the trapezius and the sternal uh, and the SCM and, and the vagus nerve itself in, in the throat are, can be energetically so powerful with the lightest touch just with the tachin gently stroking. And I realized uh, that's what moms do with babies. And that's how I really came to the mother's touch. We saw it done with the Taishin. And then uh, Beijing invited me to give a talk. And I said, in the nine classic needles, the chapter one of the Ling Shu, it, it talks about three non-insertive needles. But this has been lost in, in the Chinese tradition. Although you have gua sha and you have cupping and you have seven, we do have a lot of superficial ways to activate. But the, the Japanese are the ones that kind of have reestablished the, the potency of just superficial contact. Being very powerful. You know, and I love, I just, I always love it when there's this tradition that comes down to us. And it's come down to us because people found things that were useful, useful enough to get up every day and do the work, useful enough to pass on to someone and someone else found it useful enough, you know, to continue passing it along. So there's that piece. And then looking at some of the modern physiology, like, you know, you were talking about the work of Gil Headley and seeing how these, these things come together. I think we're living in an extraordinary time where we can take some of our traditional medicine and we can look through the lenses and filters of some of the modern biomedicine, especially the the physiology and what we know about neurology. And they just come together in in a delightful way that for me just gives me a lot of, uh, gives me a lot of hope for the future really is what it does. And that there's a lot that we can do and, and maybe even have languages both the traditional languages that we speak of how medicine is and, and modern anatomy. They're not that far apart. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you for uh, inviting me, Michael. I appreciate you so much. The work you do in the larger community is you have your own mother's touch. I always get so much from these conversations and there's a lot in this one, but the one thing that stands out is how so often we are studying dysfunction and hoping that it will aid us in helping others. But perhaps we should be studying how things work well. And our Chinese medicine has something to say about that with the Yuan and the Zheng Qi. But more than that, this conversation reminds me to be attentive to the quiet processes that are working smoothly and to give them some attention in the healing process. We can use what's working well to heal that which is not. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. 
It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.